Uh, I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, just a quick reminder of what we've been through so far. Um, as I told you, I kind of backed into this series. Um, that's what happens when you just keep on trusting the Lord for the next sermon that you're going to preach. And uh, we started with Nehemiah. I was just very, very burdened to just talk about how important the Word of God is in our worship and a little distressed uh, over um, Christian culture in the United States especially where we come expecting something from the service. And, And that's why we have all these shoppers that go from church to church, you know, looking to what they can get out of it. And uh, maybe they don't like the music at one church or the kids' program isn't good at the other church and, and so forth and so on. God help the ones that come here. We've got so many cringe factors. We don't have a slide for the children to go down to Sunday school. And, you know, we don't have a full orchestra here, but we've got a killer band um, that lifts up worship. I, I just... I want to give a shout-out to my son. I'm sorry. I know he's my son. (laughs) Those drums really matter in the worship service. And he's the longest longest standing member of the worship team. He is. He's been been, uh, playing drums for Beacon of Hope since its inception. And uh, we just really appreciate that. Of course, the rest of the group is marvelous, too. But... I was just thinking today there was one song where, you know, without the drums, it would not have been the same at all. And I just really appreciate it. We have to pull him in every once in a while. He begins to worship a little bit too much with the drums. And so, but uh, he lets us pull him in, which is really marvelous. But the Word of God, you won't be a church shopper if you're coming to hear the Word of God. If you're coming to bring your worship to him rather than expecting something from the worship service. And we talked in Nehemiah about how they stood out in the sun for six hours with their children. They did that for seven days. The word was very important to them. And then we moved into John chapter 4 and talked about how it's not so much a matter of the place where we worship. Because some people really put a a, a lot of... of, uh, importance on the the place where they worship. It's church. It's the house of God. I want to tell you where the church gathers, where believers gather, that's where God is. It's not so much the building around it. And, And even saying that today, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the throne room of God. And I don't know, how many have ever been down to the St. Paul Cathedral and gone into the cathedral? probably about a third of us. I'd really encourage you to do that. Just go into the cathedral. I think it's open all the time. And just walk through the front doors. The first thing that will happen to you is you will become quiet. And there was, there was some, some thought that went into the making of cathedrals and so forth. And I can't imagine what the temple was like that the Jews worshipped in. But, you know, that, that, that building, there is something to be said for buildings like that. But that is not the house of God. Wherever Christians are gathered, the church is gathered, that's the house of God. And so we talked about how important it is to worship in spirit and truth. And then last week we talked about giving our all, all of us, 
to God when we come to worship from Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it's just very important for us to understand these concepts. And so these early sermons that I'm preaching in this series that's continuing to develop, <laughs> um, I will title Preparation for, serve, uh, for Worship. Preparation for Worship. Um, I'll have a couple more weeks in preparation for worship, and then we're going to start looking at the components of worship uh, as we move on through this this material. And people say, "Well, what happened to the foundations of you know uh, the foundation series?" Well, foundation series, I, I wrap that up when we when we get to after the flood and the Tower of Babel, the next thing is Abraham, and I already taught on Abraham. Now, I could go back and start with Joseph and teach about Joseph and, and, and continue on through the Old Testament. I may do that, but not until I'm done with this series on worship because I'm so burdened to do that. So just let me give you a little background before I read you uh, the first few verses in chapter 6. This chapter begins with a, a definite time stamp. And it says, in the year of King Uzziah's death. And this is important because it sets the stage for Isaiah's state of mind. I'm giving you a little bit of uh, what, what it was like for Isaiah. King Uzziah became king of Judah at 16 years of age. And his father had faltered badly when he was killed for his failures. Now, Uzziah lived, uh, was king for 52 years, and I don't know if he was trying to make up for his father or what, but his, his reign was marked with all sorts of prosperity and power. Uh, their enemy, their main enemy, was the Assyrians. The Assyrians and, and during the time when the Assyrians were weak, Uzziah was strong. And 2 Kings 15 describes Uzziah as one who did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. So he was a good king until he wasn't. <laughs> and this happened to so many of the kings of Israel. In their older age, they failed the Lord. And that is something to be aware of, older men and women. Finish strong. Finish strong. You see, Uzziah was destroyed by his own personal pride. 2 Chronicles 26 tells the whole story, and it's a sad one for sure. He wanted to follow the kings of the east, the kings around him, and perform priestly duties in addition to his royal duties as a king. The kings around him didn't have Yahweh as their king, and as their lord, and as their, their high and lifted up one. They, they were the end of the story, okay? And so they did priestly responsibilities as well. And he wanted to follow the kings of the east and perform priestly duties as well as his royal duties. And so he entered the temple one day and he wanted to offer incense to Yahweh, which was a priestly responsibility. It's clearly laid out in the Old Testament. And when he was confronted by the high priest at that time, together with 80 priests who were men of valor, I don't know if they were Jesuits or what, but you know, these, these, it says men of valor. That means that these were strong men, but they were priests, and they joined together with the high priest and rebuked him. Uzziah became angry. And with his censer in hand, what you 
do incense with. Uzziah went to burn incense, and immediately leprosy broke out on his forehead as a divine judgment on him. And he went out of the temple and remained isolated and alone because of his leprosy and because Yahweh's judgment had fallen on him. And then four years later, he died. Now, he was good up until the very end. And then he was separated from the temple. You couldn't go in the temple. You couldn't interact with people socially. And it was because of his pride. He thought he could be a priest, and that was not his calling. Yet for the last four decades, he had been a prosperous and powerful king in Judah. And now he was dead, and the throne of David was empty. And this is weighing upon Isaiah's mind. Isaiah was bereft. And Yahweh gave Isaiah a wonderful vision of himself, seated high on the throne, high and lifted up, the God of glory, eternal, immortal, God only wise. And he needed that because Isaiah was feeling alone. Get to that in a little bit. So in this series on worship, it's paramount that we understand who it is that we worship. And we're back to Tozer's declaration. Quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than his idea of God. What do you think about when you think about God? Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains either high or low views and thoughts about God. Now for this reason, the most important question before the church is always God himself. Who is it that we worship? And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he is at any given time or what he may say or do, but what he in his deep heart of hearts conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And this is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church, us. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Now we don't do videos here and preach off the video, but I was sorely tempted to do this and show you a little video this week. Um, Cha mentioned this to me. I had already seen it on the web, but last week was Super Bowl Sunday, right? And um, some churches uh, really, they have Super Bowl Sunday in their church. I, I would never do that just because of the commercials. <laughs> I, I, you people would probably fire me if I did that. I would never do that. Um, I have nothing against watching the Super Bowl. I mean, it's, it's a sport. It's fun. Some of the commercials you do have to turn off. The halftime show, you definitely have to turn off. Uh, but what happened Sunday in some churches is just absolutely beyond the pale. There's a church in Cincinnati, uh, 34,000 people, so you can tell already it's a mega church. 34,000 people. And it started off with announcers up above the stage, and they were announcing like they were at the big football game. 
and they, you know, they called out the football game and the players, and a woman pastor and a couple other male pastors got up there, and they're all in their football, football jerseys, and they flipped the coin, and the lady pastor got the, the flip, and so she wanted to kick off. And then they, they put down a Bible, and they held it like, you know, you're going to punt the football, and she comes running up, and she kicked the Bible into the audience. The most revealing thing about a church is her idea of God. People, I'm telling you, we live in a sick world. And I'm sure that there's even worse examples of that. I heard of a pastor last week uh, coming into church on a wrecking ball, uh, Miley Cyrus-type wrecking ball, and proclaiming, you know, the Super Bowl. People... Those aren't churches. I don't know what they are. They're abominations. But that shows you what perspective they have of God. And, you know, that's why I'm, I'm talking about this worship service. Now, listen, like I said last week, I'm not expecting us all to come in, in long robes and be somber and, you know, don't talk and just, you know, act like this because we're, we're worshiping God Almighty. But I do think that we can become overly casual. Okay? Enough said. We can become overly casual. And I don't want us to be like that. Um, out there, cool. I mean, just laugh it up. Yuck, yuck. Have a great time. Enjoy one another. Fellowship is marvelous. Sunday school, uh, fellowship hour, that's, that's great. But in here, let's try to have a modicum of, of respect and, and honor because we're, we're joining together to worship. And that's why we have a, a call to worship. And sometimes it's, it's almost impossible to get everybody to settle down. And I, I don't want to rob you of fellowship, but I do want you to understand that we're trying to provide an atmosphere of worship here. And if you came in and you quieted yourselves, and listen, I talk to people too, so, you know... One finger pointing at you, three pointing back at me. I, I get that. But if we all work together at this, we can maybe provide a bit more of an atmosphere for worship in preparation for our set of music that we go into and then the preaching of the word. That's all I'm saying. Hear my heart. Okay? Don't, don't crucify the messenger. So, today, in Isaiah 6, the Bible provides us with a majestic image of God and explains how it affects a person who experiences seeing God. We just sang, uh, these songs are dangerous, Tracy. I want to see God. I want to see you. I want to see you. We repeated it repeatedly. Really? Are you sure? You really want to see him? I mean, we're going to see what happened to Isaiah here. And it provides us with this picture of God and the person who experiences seeing God. And we worship God. Yahweh, we worship the creator of the universe. He is the high and lifted up one or exalted one. He is king over all. He is the thrice holy God. We sang that today. Holy, holy, holy. And his glory fills the whole earth and his presence is observable. So look at Isaiah chapter 6 and I'd like to read these verses to you. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, 
lofty and exalted, and with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, as we break in on this text of Scripture so marvelously provided by you, to give us a glimpse of who it is that we truly worship, we pray that you'd open the eyes of our understanding, break into our hearts, and show us the, the privilege that we have of preparing ourselves to worship you in spirit and truth, not just on Sunday morning, not just throughout the rest of the week, not for all of our life, but preparatory for me being with you in heaven. And Lord, um, I just pray that you use these words from Isaiah today to just speak to our hearts, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this vision of God, high and lifted up, who is it that Isaiah, Isaiah saw? I mean, it's Lord. It says the Lord, Adonai. And it's his fullest sense of meaning. This, this name for God could be translated Lord of all or Master in the sense of being the sovereign or the ruler. This is who he saw. And the first time it's used in the Bible is in Genesis 15.2. And the settings right after Abram had defeated the kings and fought against Sodom and Gomorrah and took Lot and routed the armies of the valley. Remember that story. And after Abram uh, heard of the defeat and went and rescued his nephew and all of his goods, the Lord Adonai, the Lord Adonai, came to him in a vision and assured him that he was Abram's shield. And Abram said, Adonai, Yahweh, Lord God or as some translations have it, Sovereign Lord. And this was a very, very intense and personal vision that Abram had, and it was assuring to him that God was his shield. Well, why this particular name of God here? Well, because God manifested himself to Isaiah in this capacity, Isaiah, as well as all of Israel, were facing a national crisis. Their king had died. The throne was empty. They were bereft of a good king. Now, he failed at the end, but he had a lot of years of service that they remembered. And Uzziah had reigned for 52 years, mostly in great prosperity and peace. But now, just as there was wars and rumors of wars in the north, and Isaiah is speaking from Judah. Assyria, that enemy, was threatening to take the northern kingdom and maybe even come down into Judah, which indeed happened. Assyria did take uh, the northern kingdom and, and did hassle 
the southern kingdom. And Isaiah and Israel were feeling lost and abandoned and uncertain. And their king was, was dying. At this time that he's writing, the king is dying. And he did die. A mere 25 years old, slated to reign in Uzziah's place, Jothan did not give the kind of confidence at all sense that they needed at the time. It's to this scene that God reveals himself as Adonai, Isaiah's shield. He's basically telling Isaiah, don't worry. Don't become anxious. And I'll tell you, the names of God are so important in the Old Testament. Isaiah would have been very familiar with the character of God. He would have been aware of the numerous uh, uses of names which reveal God's character. And he manifested himself in many ways in the past. And Moses had recorded most in the Pentateuch, but consider what Isaiah already knew about God from his names, his self-revelation through his names. There are primary names like God, El, or Elohim, and we've discussed that name before from Genesis 1.1. El means powerful one. Im is the ending, which means plural. Okay? And then, and then you have Lord, or Yahweh. In our Bibles, it's always capital letters, L-O-R-D, all caps. That is Yahweh. And Yahweh is first introduced in Genesis 2.4, Yahweh Elohim, a compound name. Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, where the emphasis is on his relationship to man. Yahweh had a personal relationship with his creation man. And further in Pentateuch, in Exodus 3.6, it's where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and told him that even though he had appeared in the, uh, to the patriarchs, they had not known him intimately as Yahweh. And you remember, Moses said, who should I say sent me? And they had been in captivity for over 400 years in Egyptian captivity. And God said, tell them I am that I am sent you. I am that I am, the eternally present one. Other names Isaiah would have been familiar with would have been names formed from the El prefix like El Shaddai. He is sufficient. He is the satisfying God. Or possibly uh, El Elyon. And there is none higher. He is the highest. El Elyon. Or everlasting God, El Olam. Um, olam is a term that we use for everlasting in Psalm 90, verse 2. You're familiar with it. From, from everlasting to everlasting, you are, present tense, God. From olam to olam, from everlasting to everlasting. Words fail, right? Words fail. Why? Because we're outside the realm of human experience. We're going into an area where it's difficult to articulate with our human languages what we're talking about. And so the writers of the scriptures are, are scrambling to get these words together. There are names formed with the prefix Yahweh, okay? The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. And this title speaks of God's power and it's manifest in Israel's time of need and failure. In Psalm 46, 7 and 11, the psalmist takes comfort in the fact that the Lord of hosts the Lord Yahweh Sabaoth is with him. The Lord of hosts is with us, our stronghold. A stronghold is where an army would be able to 
protect themselves. Uh, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Okay? All these names, you can take them and study them, and you can take them and use them in your own life when you're praying in a time of need or time of rejoicing and lifting up the Lord, Yahweh everlasting from everlasting. And all these will impact your, your life. How about uh, Yahweh Jireh? The Lord will provide. And this came uh, in Genesis 22 after Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac and, and the angel of the Lord stopped him. And he said, Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. And God provided a sacrifice instead of Isaac beautiful picture. But how many times do you have needs and you need to ask God, Yahweh Jireh, to provide for you? This is not beyond our prayers. You can do this. Use these names. This is who he is. This is who we worship. And how many of us have not heard of these names before? And that's why we study the word of God. That's why I preach the word of God here. So there are many more names. I mean, there's Yahweh Nisi, the banner, and Yahweh Shalom, the peace, and Yahweh Roy, he sees, and Yahweh Sidkenu, our righteousness, Yahweh Shema, the Lord is there. And with each name, God reveals a different aspect of his character and his nature. And these are self-revelation that God provides for us in the scripture. But how do we square Isaiah saying he saw Adonai with these verses. In Exodus 33.20, no man can see me and live. And then you have John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. And then there's one more, 1 Timothy 6.16, God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. And yet Isaiah says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord, Adonai. How how do we square that with those verses we just read? How can he say, I saw Adonai? Well, I've often said that the Bible interprets itself, often. And it's always best to take its interpretation to heart. And here the Bible's answer of how Isaiah could actually say he saw Adonai is found in John chapter 12. You don't need to turn there. Just let me explain it to you. Jesus is explaining to the people about their unbelief. He's just marveling at their unbelief after he does all these miracles before them. And he quotes a number of references from Isaiah. And in John 12, 41... He pulls the curtain back and he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. My glory. He's referring to himself there. He saw his glory and he spoke of him. And as you read down through the text, you'll see that he's talking about himself. And a clear reference to what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6.1 is he saw Jesus. You say, ah, wait a second. He hadn't been born yet. Ah, there you need to study the scriptures again. 
He saw Jesus. This shouldn't surprise us if we remember Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Lord, Jesus Christ. It's called a Christophany or a theophany. Okay, And all through the Old Testament, you have these instances where God reveals himself to human beings. And it is the pre-incarnate Christ that is showing up there before his incarnation. Like, take Genesis 12, 7 and Genesis 17, 1. Yahweh appeared to Abraham. It says it plainly. He appeared to Abraham. Genesis 32, you can just take these... Notes down. Genesis 32, Jacob wrestled with a man. And afterwards he said, I have seen God face to face. And it was, it was a pre-incarnate Christ that he wrestled with. And then Exodus 24, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders went up to the mountain with Moses to the top of the mountain. And it says, they saw the God of Israel. These are all theophanies or Christophanies. These are all pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. Exodus 33, it says, Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And yet that friend prohibited Moses from entering the promised land. (laughs) He spoke to him like a friend talks to a friend. What a relationship. Sometimes in the Old Testament, such appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ are called the angel of the Lord. A very distinct term. The angel of the Lord. It's very, very distinct. And that is identified with the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So seeing God, that's how it's possible. In Isaiah 6.1, Isaiah calls him Adonai the sovereign Lord, the Lord of all. And Isaiah knew whom it was that he worshipped. And at this critical time in his life and ministry, with the loss of King Uzziah and an empty throne, Isaiah was encountering God in a deeper and a more meaningful way than he had ever encountered him before. And this is the God that we worship, the same one. And we forget that. And some people really forget it and kick the word of God like a football. Lord. The earthly king may be gone, but the eternal king is immovable. And the large tree that offered shade and beauty may have been chopped down. Uzziah died, but it only served to open up a clearer view of the blue sky by day and the brilliant stars by night. One thing led to another. Isaiah needed to understand that Adonai is all in all, and that he empties so that he may fill. He wounds that he may heal. He bruises that he may bind up. He he allows loneliness that he may befriend us. And he allowed him to feel alone here so that he could become Isaiah's all in all. He allows poorness that he may become our riches. He allows hunger that he may feed us with his very presence. He allows thirst that he may quench it with the waters of eternal life. And Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne sitting on a throne doesn't stop people his throne is not the throne of any earthly king but the throne of God 
Psalm 11, 4 says, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. The Bible reveals that the throne of God is beyond our comprehension, and the writers of Scripture strive to help us to see it, describing it as surrounded by a host of heaven. And like a rainbow or emeralds, we sang a little bit about this this morning, a, a crystal clear sea of glass, an expanse spreads out before it, and, and countless numbers of angels are around it. It is his holy throne. It's glorious in appearance. It's eternal in its duration. It's described as flaming with fire, glittering with sapphires, flashing and crashing lightning and thunder and dazzling white from which flows a river of living water. You sure you want to see God? You want to disintegrate right before his face? There are three passages I want you to turn to these. Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7. These are pictures of that throne room of God. Daniel 7, verse 9, and I'll read just two verses here. Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat and the books were opened. Just one small glimpse of the throne of God in heaven. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Now over the heads of the living beings there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. And each one also had two wings covering its body, and on the one side and on the other. I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings and there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. Wherever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapsus lazuli in appearance. And on that which is resembled a throne, high up, it was a figure with appearance of a man. And then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal, that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him. And as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell down on my face and heard a voice speaking. 
Do you want to see God? Final one, Revelation chapter 1. The throne room of God. Revelation 1. And beginning in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, John said. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. Notice how many times it says like. It's, it's a comparison. There weren't words that he could use to actually articulate what he was seeing. And so he says, it was like this. It was like that. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. I want to point out an interesting detail between Ezekiel's vision and John's, the last two that we read. Both saw the sea of glass like crystal, an expanse. And it's important to recognize that these are real things. They're not just symbols. And, and the writers had a hard time expressing what they really were. But it's something stretched out before John, it says. Before John. So as I'm standing here, I'm looking at it, and it's stretched out before me. But Ezekiel saw the same expanse from a different perspective. John says this, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and in the center and around it the throne, and four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now Ezekiel says this, Now over their heads, the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal extended over their heads. And he goes on to describe what he saw. Now above the expanse and over their heads there was something resembling a throne. So John is looking at it from eye level in his vision. This is so cool. And, and Ezekiel's looking at it from underneath. <laughs> and he sees the expanse above him. And then the throne above the expanse. God's word is so marvelous, people. It's the same vision from a different perspective. John's vision was an eye level, and Ezekiel seemed to have seen things from beneath the expanse and looking up through the expanse to the throne. These realities are beyond our comprehension. And except for God divinely revealing them to us, we'd have no idea of the throne room of God in heaven. Isaiah saw this vision, and it seared into his mind. Now, God is lofty and lifted up. He's the high and exalted one. The punctuation in the verse in um, Isaiah 6, it, it almost seems as though it's the throne, right? 
It says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. And it seems like it's a throne that's lofty and exalted, but we see this described in other places in the scripture in, in Isaiah 52, 13. It says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. In Isaiah 57, 15, it says, For thus says the high and exalted one, I dwell on high and in a holy place. So when Job finally saw the majesty of Yahweh, he declared, I am insignificant. Job we're talking about now. When Job finally got a glimpse after all of his trials, at the very end, and he saw God, he said, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. What can you say? And he says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I repent in dust and ashes. He disintegrated before the presence of God. See, that's who we worship, people. And how dare anyone kick a Bible into the audience? How dare anybody talk about meeting with his bro, Jesus, while he's shaving in the morning? What, what is their view of God? What God are they talking about? It's not the God of the Bible. That's not the way God reveals himself to people. So I'd have to say that they're extremely deceived. And this scene that takes place in heaven, because as I said, Yahweh is in his holy temple and Yahweh's throne is in heaven. Jesus made this truth clear in giving guidance about making vows in Matthew 5, saying, But I say to you, make no oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool. Now, the throne of God in heaven, we have, we have thrones here on earth. We had a temple, okay? And this temple in heaven, of which the earthly one is just a mere shadow. It's a copy of the one in heaven. And the book of Hebrews chapter 9 speaks of the copies of the things in heaven, referring to the temple and its altar etc. Calling the most sacred place of Judaism a mere copy of what is in heaven. We, we just, we're mimicking real things. Ours aren't the real things. We see now as in a glass dimly. Right? But we do see. Consider for a moment what that copy was like when at the dedication of the temple on earth, the manifestation of Yahweh's presence proved to be overwhelming as a cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. And that was just a copy of the throne in heaven. This revelation of God to Isaiah was wholly initiated by God. Isaiah didn't do anything to get this vision. Isaiah had nothing to do with bringing it about. And God in his sovereign will determined to reveal himself to Isaiah. And what Isaiah saw was so completely other than anything he had ever seen before. And even Isaiah saw God, 
There was a blinding light of Shekinah glory like smoke that filled the temple and all of this was completely beyond any human experience that he had ever experienced before. And so it was with Abraham when the Lord appeared to him beneath the trees in Genesis 18. So it was with Jacob when he wrestled with a man. He's overwhelmed by him. And so it was with Moses when he witnessed God in the burning bush. And so it is when the Lord appeared to Joshua and Manoah and Daniel's three friends in the, in the fiery furnace. He is not hiding. <laughs> it was Tozer who related the modern view of God to be like a dingy gray rather than a dazzling white hot vision the Bible recounts of men seeing God. He said, quote, The problem today is that we allow our churches to stay dingy gray instead of pleading for holy whiteness. I'm pleading for holy whiteness, for beacon of hope. Not the monk's robes, people, but just a real clear vision of who it is that we worship because it will, it will revolutionize us as people and as a church. I agree with Tozer when he says, we see that the presence of the Holy One only allows holy beings. Oops, there we go. You want to see God. You want to see God. You must be holy. Hebrews tells us, pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see God. Do we really believe that verse? How are our lives? Now, I'm, I'm telling you, the culture that we live in and because of the devices that we have at our fingertips is so ubiquitous, it, it, it completely, it, it smothers us in the world. It smothers us. And to have this other vision of God, other than anything that the world can actually give us, it's hard to even fathom that it's real. But it is. I've just recounted to you multitudes of examples through the Bible of people who saw God and understood who it was that they worshipped. So it's not impossible. Tozer says, there's an unapproachable, indescribable quality that's inherent in the awesome holiness of God, but it seems we have lost the sense of this. And the Holy One is our gatherings, in our gatherings almost altogether forgotten. And the reason for this is that we have embraced a low rather than a high view of God. We've, we've made him just like us. He's not like us. Not even close. Tozer said, perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. That church in Cincinnati, it will not be around next year. It will not be around in the years to come. Those kind of churches don't have grandchildren. They're, they're a flash in the pan, and then they, they dissipate. And we've seen it happen to so many already. It'll happen. The long career of Israel demonstrates this clearly enough. And the history of the church confirms it's so necessary to the church as a lofty concept of God that when the concept in any measure declines... The church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. You think that LGBTQ is not having an effect on the evangelical church in the West? Think again. 
And it's just chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And it's not a political thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about morals. This is biblical stuff. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. But God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. And we wonder where, where is power with God? Where is, where is a vision of God that causes us to bow down? Our friend across the river said this, and you'll recognize who I'm talking about. I'm arguing that God's infinite worth and beauty would be exalted in everlasting white-hot worship. White-hot worship. When I use the phrase white-hot worship, I'm calling out the visceral implications of words like supremely authentic and intense The reason words like these are important is that there is a correlation between the measure of our intensity in worship and the degree to which we exhibit the value of the glory of God. We reflect what we think of God in the way that we worship Him. Lukewarm affections for God give the impression that He is moderately pleasing. He's got away with words, folks. No doubt about it. That's Dr. Piper. He's not moderately pleasing. He's infinitely pleasing. If we're not intensely pleased, we need forgiveness and healing. <laughs> Which, of course, we do. I can just see him preaching this. No, he's just... He's a word crafter. When we gather again, next time we get together... I'm going to look at the seraphim and their message and, and maybe we'll get to Isaiah's response. I doubt it. <laughs> There's so much here. And I'm just your poor pastor calling you to a higher view of God. And all of us can have a higher view of God, including me, including me. We can always notch it up, notch it up. And again, it's not the monk thing, folks. You, you can hold your high view of God and be a very, very joyful people because the joy of the Lord is our strength after all. So be ready for that. Uh, we're looking forward to that next time around. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and these wonderful, wonderful examples of you meeting with people and revealing yourself to people and in the visions that they had of you. We get to read about these things They are real. They are true. And Lord, um, help us to to just examine our own hearts and and rid out those things that are, are carnal, those things that are dirty, those things that are weighing us down and, and keeping our view of you um, to be less than it needs to be. And Father, each one of us is different. Father, each of us is an individual and your Holy Spirit's able to just touch us and point out what area we need to deal with in our own lives so that we might worship you more freely. And I just thank you, Lord, and I just pray that you would uh, work in our behalf so that we might bring you much glory. In Jesus' name, amen.